0: Uh, My name is Luke Stark and today is October 23rd, 2014. This interview is for a project called Fatherless by Suicide and I'm here to just share my story, my experiences with that subject. And it was just such uncanny timing that you were here at the time you were on today which is the the five year anniversary of my dad's death. Uh, But I'm glad to be here and I'm glad to do this. My favorite story is I have a tattoo on my ass that I got after he died that is his initials and his birth and death years and I tell people about that and they're always like why would you get a tattoo there a lot of people find that disrespectful but then I tell them when me and my sister were you know 13, 14, me and my sister are two years apart and she's older anytime we would bring a new friend over my dad would introduce himself and then say hey do you want to see my ass? If they said no, then he wouldn't. He'd just be like, okay. But if they said yes, he flat out would. No hesitation, no question. She's so like, okay. And then he turned around and pulled out his pants. Yeah. This is why you were a teenager? He would do this? Yeah, this is while I was like 13, 14. He would do this. And so, what was your response
1: and your and your sister's response?
0: You know, mostly just embarrassment and shame. Uh, At the time, looking back on it, it's incredibly hilarious just the fact that he would do that. He was kind of a ridiculous man, my father was. Uh, From what I can remember of his personality, he was very warm, he was very loving, he was always there for us, gave us whatever we wanted or needed, and always tried to support anything we were interested in. And He was always very open with everything except himself, pretty much. I got him to tell me about what he was like when he was a kid once. It was always a very sad story. He was a kid that grew up with a cleft palate for I think like 10 or 12 years of his life, so he had a split lip, he was made fun of a lot, and that was a big deal for him when he was a kid. He, that just, that really affected him, and I think that's just where, the point where he shut down and that's really all the information I ever got from him was that part of his life and then that's it, everything else I've learned about my father, how he was when he was my age was from my aunts and uncles. So from a young age, my dad started working. He was like 11 or 12 and I had the whole paper route system. Uh, and that's what he knew growing up because his dad wasn't around. When I was 13, I kind of started doing the same thing because I was a little socially awkward and it was just, you know, it was either I can spend my summer when I'm 13 sitting in my room playing video games or I can go work for my dad and, you know, do something. So I worked for my dad. I know that was a little awkward for him. He was very proud of that because he'd like to see me, you know, growing and acting more adults. But at the same time, he still wanted me to be a kid. But he supported that because he knew like what the alternative was was for me just waste time. I was working at Legoland as a sound engineer, and I was in a break um, between the first and second shows, and I got a phone call from my sister. And I picked up the phone, and it sounded very staticky, it sounded like she was laughing, I couldn't figure out what was going on, and the call cut out. So that was weird, and then she called back. When I got that phone call, I was standing next to my supervisor, who watched me receive that phone call. So I hung up the phone, I turned, and, I turned to him and said, I have to leave right now. And I got into the little utility cart that we had by the theater, and I drove. And I don't even think I clocked out, I just drove dr- directly to the office, ran through the office, got into my car and started driving over to his house. I was—I think I got in like three blocks away from work when I just, I said to myself out loud, he's dead. Like that, uh, just something I knew, I think it was just the tone of my sister's voice where that could be the only thing that would make her sound like that. So I drove way too fast and way too emotional and I got there uh, as quickly as I could. And I pulled up and there were two police cars with three officers. The ambulance had just left. There was tape over the door, because it was still technically a crime scene. The first person I went to was my mom, because she was there, uh, and she was completely catatonic. She was not responding, she did not look well, and my sister was just, just bawling her eyes out. And the police officers were trying to talk to my mom, and she couldn't do anything. So I, I, I grabbed the officer he was talking to by the arm and said, you're going to talk to me now. And he told me what was going on. And he said that um, my dad had been found in the backyard uh, with a gunshot wound to his head and the gun on the ground next to him, I guess. I went to my sister and asked her what was going on because it was difficult to process. Uh, but she said the same thing. And she said my mom had been the one that found him in the backyard the police officers were still there and i went and sat down on the curb and that's at the, just sat down on the curb and that's when i lost it and i started just bawling my eyes out i was just crying i was screaming i was yelling and then i just went and i pulled my mom and my sister together and just hugged and we just kept saying we love you we love you and all that stuff and and like that was that situation and then the police left and we couldn't go in the house because the investigation hadn't been completed. The week, the next seven days were a complete blur. And it's funny because every year, because today is the anniversary of his death, uh, every year memories come back a little bit clearer but that whole day was just kind of a blur. First I remember sitting in the living room and all of my family showed up and I was just sitting there and I was completely in shock, but I just felt really dirty. So I just got up and I walked up the stairs and just got in the shower and sat down and just cried there for like an hour and a half, two hours, however long it took for the water to run cold. I walked back downstairs and I went to our pantry where we had had two big handles of, one was vodka and I think one was rum from a party we had had for my sister's graduation. And I took those and I poured them down the drain because I didn't want them in the house. I, like Initially I really just wanted to drink both bottles as fast as I could. But alcohol has been run in my family. That was part of why my dad had killed himself uh, was due to a relapse. Uh, so I just took them and I poured them down the sink. And then um, we ate pizza and we all just kind of were there in the room, not talking about what had just happened because no one knew what to say. And that was the end of the first day. And the next day I woke up and I remember feeling that for maybe five minutes, I really couldn't tell whether or not what had happened was real or whether it was all just a dream. So the second day, I was kind of tonic at that point. I was in shock. I wasn't really sure what was happening. I had no emotions. I was just stone-faced all the time. So I was like, okay, let's just go and do what has to be done. So we went to the mortuary where my dad was going to be cremated. We got all that together, and I just kind of sat there while my two uncles talked to the people that were running it. I was just there to sign the check because I had to do that. I remember having an episode outside of the mortuary, partly because, you know, mostly because my dad had just killed himself, but partly because it was at the mortuary I realized that I did not know how to write or sign a check. I had never done that. So I'm sitting there and they asked me to sign a check and I don't know how to do that. So that's like lesson number one, first step at being resentful towards my dad is not knowing this basic skill. Day three, I think that was the day that they got um, what was more or less the suicide note. One thing that's important to know about my dad, he was a very type A personality. He was very neat and organized and got business done and made sure things were set up when they needed to be done. I think we went from the coroner's office to my dad's house and we just wanted to go there, just to be there. So we went inside and I learned from one of my really good friends, Stevens, whose his dad killed himself when we were sixteen, that most suicides don't even leave a note; it just happens. So we, so knowing that, I go into my dad's house, and we go into his office, which is it just immaculate because that's how it was in general. But on this little side table uh, next to his desk, there were nine, uh, like, manila folders, each labeled with all of his business affairs. There was one for his car, there was one for his dogs, one for his business, one for his taxes, one for the house. He had everything laid out, ready to be done, which at first I just, I just started cracking up because, like, that's, like, my quintessential father just doing all of that and having that all ready. When my friend Steven dad killed himself, he just woke up in the middle of the night and jumped off a freeway overpass into traffic. And it took them six years to sort out all of his affairs. With and my dad had laid everything out. My uncle got it taken care of in eight months. So I guess we're all grateful for that, and we, we all just couldn't help but laugh at the just how that was. But then after laughing, I got very sad and lost it because that just reinforced how premeditated the entire act was. My dad had gone out and bought a cheap like $3 lawn chair and put it in the part of his yard that was the farthest away from everything. And he killed himself in a $3 lawn chair that could be thrown away easily and made as little a mess as possible in the middle of this this gravel that was his backyard. So again, that reinforced the premeditated thing. One of my uncles had already been back there and hosed it down so it wasn't so graphic, but the chair was still there and I did see it and I did see the bloodstains on the chair. That was awful. And then I went back inside and went into his room and was just I was just looking around at his stuff, just all, all very surreal. And I was just going through his things and I pulled this blanket down from the closet and put it on his bed. And I went to put it back and I realized there was something hard in it. So I opened it up, and there was the box of bullets that he had used, uh, and I freaked out at that. And I was, you know, again, like the whole week was just catatonic. But I was fine to that point until they actually handed me the box with his ashes in it, and that was another moment where I just lost it because I realized my entire dad, my daddy was six two, and like two hundred and fifty pounds, fit into this cardboard box that was like eight by four by eight high. Uh and I just couldn't believe that this man that I had known and loved was in this little box and it was just his ashes. Uh, the weeks leading up to his death, we knew about his relapse and we knew that that was you know, affecting him. We saw it in his behavior and his appearance. I didn't see him for almost a month before he died, but every time I saw him before that, when I went to his house, I would secretly search his house looking for anything that might be a tip or a clue of something, you know, going wrong because the whole situation was very weird. And I never found anything. I mean, knowing my dad, even if I had, at any point, if I had found something, if he had made that decision, it still would've happened. If I had found alcohol or the gun or the bullets or anything, it would've happened anyways. I would. It, there would've been no stopping it. It would've just been postponing the inevitable. I think he knew what he was going to do for at least a month. I know it was at least three days because he had to buy a gun, and that's like the law in California. He need three days for a background check. So again, three days, he could have made the decision to change his mind. Three hours making a video, he could have made the decision to change his mind, and he didn't. He was going to do it.
1: And what does that mean for you as you think of your father and and the loss of
0: him? In a very fucked up way, I can appreciate it. On a very fucked up level, I appreciate it because, you know, to the end, he was a man that stuck to his guns and, you know, you make a decision and you follow through on it. The other end of that spectrum is that he was the man who taught me, you know, you don't give up, you don't give in. So... Killing yourself is like the ultimate giving in. So one at one point I respect him, but the other it's like, you know, everything you taught me, you just made a lie. You just basically said, oh, all these things I taught you are just bullshit for you to grow up with. Uh, yeah, but I he just did it. And there, I couldn't have done anything to change that. Um, He didn't just leave a note, he left a three-part video. The first part of the video was explaining why he did it. And it was the only time that I know of that my dad ever truly opened up about what he thought and what he felt. Another part of it was his alcoholism. He'd been an alcoholic when he was around my age. He was sober, 20-something years, and then he'd had a, a relapse that he didn't tell us about. He started going to AA meetings. We didn't know about the relapse. But we thought that was a good thing, because after he divorced my mom, he kind of became a hermit, and he kind of just, you know, collapsed into himself. So that was not a good decision for him. You know, he kind of, you know, just became a hermit and very self-possessed and tried to make friends but couldn't make friends. So we saw the going to the AA meetings as a step forward because it was him branching out. It was him meeting people in a situation where he felt comfortable so we thought it was weird but we were totally supportive because otherwise he was just you know, sitting at home worrying about his business there was a second relapse that he did tell us about that led to one of, one of the big aspects of why he killed himself was that second relapse i think he felt like he had really just lost control second part of the video was how to deal with his business and the third part was the division of his estates it's a three-part video you, you read the statistics but well, people don't even leave a note So a video in itself is phenomenal. A video that's divided, like, with spaces, with gaps in the tape. Like, he... he, Each part was like 45 minutes to an hour long. So there was two and a half to three hours where he could have changed his mind. We found out he had this, like, secret life insurance policy that I don't think my mom even knew about, that we learned about from his accountant after he found out that my dad had died. And the life insurance policy was for $300,000. So me, my mom, and my sister each got $100,000 from his his death. And that was, you know, that's, like, I was 21, and I was just handed $100,000, which was crazy. Um, but the connection I made with the premeditation was that about a year before that happened, I had applied to and gotten into and even gotten a scholarship of sorts to a music school called Musicians Institute which was in Hollywood and he went and he took me to an open house and I wanted to go there but it was crazy expensive and I tried like I asked you know try to get loans on my own and I couldn't qualify I needed a cosigner so I asked my dad and he'd been about it for a while but he just couldn't and I thought that was weird not that I was trying to be you know selfish or feel I deserve it but you know there was like one of those things where it, in the past he would have just sprung for it. I was like okay This is a huge risk, but we're going to take it. And at the same time, my sister was thinking about going into grad school, and she was also worried about money. When we found out that he had this life insurance policy, we also found out that he had run his business $200,000 into debt. So he had buried himself in this giant hole. We had to sell his house to cover the debt. And this had happened at the same time that my sister was thinking about going to grad school and I was trying to get into this school. So I've made the connection, and I think my sister agrees with me, that he knew about this life insurance policy. He knew we would get it. So part of the reason he killed himself was for us to have these opportunities that he couldn't give us at the time that we asked for them, which you know, still messes with me a lot, a lot. And it messes with my sister a lot because you know it's still, you know, so angry for such a long time about what he did and it's just abandonment I feel like it was kind of the second time that my dad abandoned my family the first being when he divorced my mom uh, but at the same time his abandonment gave me and my sister the opportunities to pursue these things that we wouldn't have had otherwise I wish he was still alive I really do but at the same time if he were still alive I might not be here I might not i wouldn't have had the money to go to the music school that I wanted to go to. Um, I could very well still be in San Diego in a dead-end job just not enjoying my life. So I have this juxtaposition of being very angry and very grateful, and that's been my biggest obstacle that I struggle with still to this day is you know fighting the anger and the appreciation happening at the same time. It was the most difficult when I was at school because here I am in this amazing place that I'm really happy to be and really angry at the reason that I'm there, really resentful of the, of the events that got me there and really resentful of these other people that I'm around that have their families that got them there, at the very least are still alive. But the other thing I think about now is that it's been five years and at this point, I am choosing to let it affect me the way it does. I have, I felt this long enough to know how to take control when I can. There are times when I lose control, it happened just a little while ago, and there, you know, it's uncontrollable sometimes, but how I feel about it at this point forward is a choice. So I have to decide how it affects me.
1: What comes up for you when, when you hear the word forgiveness?
0: forgiveness is a great great question. I still don't forgive my dad for what he did I, I I still don't I'm not nearly as angry about it as I was and I have been. I really want to forgive him and I really hope that I can someday but still five years later I'm not sure. I could. He wanted me to grow up and be a man, and I did, whether I liked it or not. And I'm still very resentful for that. And now it's hard because in the last five years have been, you know, twenty-one, I'm twenty-six now. It's very influential years. This time I've really done a lot of growing and it's felt like every accomplishment I've had so far is overshadowed by the fact that he's not around. Everything that feels great could feel greater if he were still alive to share them with, to be proud of. And he, I just, I can't have that feeling. I will never have that feeling. That will never be a part of my life again. And that's, I'm not sure I'll ever be able to get over that. Yeah, forgiveness is, is tricky.
1: Is it something that you're, you're actively trying to work at, or is it something you're resigned to?
0: I've had a handful of epiphanies since his death. Uh, the most recent one I had was that, I, I don't remember what I was doing, but I just remember realizing at one point that I'm trying to do all these things. I'm trying to accomplish these things that I think would make my dad proud. And it was in this moment that I just realized I'm trying to impress someone who's not even alive. And that was, that was a literal sit-down, whoa, moment for me. So it was in that moment I realized I need to stop trying to live up to the expectations of a dead man, of a man that killed himself. It was two years of just pure anger just anytime anyone asked me how i felt about my dad it was angry 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 occasionally sad but mostly just angry i i wanted to believe that there was a hell just so i could believe that he was there because that made me feel better and i wanted him to feel the pain that he had been making me feel I don't really think there was a major turning point with the anger. I think I just got tired of being angry. It just became poisonous. And I just, I I didn't want to feel that way anymore. So I think I started going to therapy for that. I guess I really started to open up to the feelings and try to find new feelings to put in there. Because it was just, I was a miserable person. But it just, you feel so alone. Because no one talks about it. At least for me, that's really what I wanted was just, someone to listen, that I felt comfortable with, that I trusted, that was close to me, and just say, yeah, that sucks. Because from what I remember, there's nothing you could say to make them feel better in that moment. I think it's important for it to be said that the idea of a man sharing his feelings should not be one met with hesitation or Restraint or shame. I know just being a guy, you grew up thinking that as a man, you're supposed to be tough and you're not supposed to show emotion. And I think there's a time and place for that. But you still need to say things to literally anybody. For people who want to get better, that's what you need to do. You just put it out there because once you put it out there, you realize it's not as big as you thought it was. Is today a special day? I am actually really glad you asked that question. Today is a special day because it doesn't feel like a special day. This is the fifth anniversary and the first two years, I avoided the day. I pretended the day didn't exist October 23rd wasn't a day on the calendar. Went to the 22nd to the 24th, and I did whatever I had to do to pretend like the 23rd did not happen. It wasn't a day in my world. Years three and four, I recognized the day, mostly year three, I recognized the day, but still tried to avoid it, tried to distract myself. Year four was kind of the same, just with less intensity. Today is here. Let me, if I can share something that I wrote this morning on Facebook. Today is the five-year anniversary of my dad's death. I can't remember if I've ever done an anniversary status, but I'm sure if I did, it wasn't positive. This year, for the first time, I woke up and wasn't immediately angry with the memory. It's all very saddening, but today I'm just glad to have a family I can lean on when the memories tang too heavy on my heart, and I'm especially grateful for my aunt and uncle, who have let me live with them while I sort out all my feelings and self-destructive behavior. It's a lonely world sometimes without my dad around, but I don't feel so alone today. So yeah, today's a special day because it's not a special day. It's just a day where I woke up and I knew what day it was, and I just kept going. And I went to school, and I was there all day, and I didn't freak out, or have a breakdown or a panic attack, and then I came here.
1: What was that thought process of sharing that in such a public way?
0: I mean, I I, I wrote that when I woke up at like 5.30 this morning. So I honestly, I, it was just to put it out there. It was just write it down and really let it out to the world. But I didn't think anybody would actually see it, but a lot of people did, and I got a lot of support from it, and that's very heartwarming to see. Looking back on it, I think it was almost kind of a dare to myself to say, okay, this is how I'm going to start the day. and This is how I want to end it. Let's make this reality happen.
1: If you had the opportunity to meet with your father, what would you want to say to him?
0: I don't think I want to meet with him. I still, I love him to death, and I miss him every day, or at least every day that I think about him now. But I still don't think if I saw him, I could say anything positive, so that is just an interaction I would rather not have. As nice as it would be to physically see him, just the thought of saying anything is, I, I have nothing. There's nothing for that scenario.
1: And what if you could hear anything from him? What
0: would you want to hear? (sighs) Do you want to see my ass? Really, I really do. If I could hear him say anything more than, more than say, I'm sorry, Uh, more than, please forgive me, more than any of those things that's what i'd like to hear what does that symbolize for you that's the best years i can remember with my dad that is all that's all the good times even if his persona and who he was was kind of fake and shut off that's that's the good times